Hey, what up Long Beach? We are back for another episode of the only podcast that updates you on the local schools, their sports teams, and our community at large. As always, the pod is part of our partnership with the Long Beach Post, and as always, this show is brought to you by the562.org. I'm JJ Fiddler. I'm Tyler Hendrickson. I just wanted to give a very quick thank you to everyone who supported us during Long Beach Gives. Uh, it's an annual fundraiser for nonprofits in Long Beach. We are a nonprofit in Long Beach, and uh, it's obviously a big day for us to bring in money to help us continue doing the work that we do here at the 562. So thank you to everyone who shared um, that fundraising link, everyone who donated. Um, we were able to surpass our fundraising goal this year. We, of course, have to thank um, one of our founding sponsors, uh, Marilyn Bowl, uh, for her contribution, matching everyone's donations to double the impact of uh, every dollar that was given for Long Beach Gives. So uh, thank you all for your support. And of course, uh, to our sponsors, Naples Rib Company, who sponsor everything that we do at the562.org, uh, as well as Ocean Law Center and others. Thank you so much. We are humbled by your support so that we can continue covering the Long Beach community the way we do. Uh, I'm Mike Gertabasio, and we've, uh, in addition to that sports coverage, been doing education coverage for the Long Beach Post. And um, that is where we are going to start. Um, this is different from what we would normally do in a podcast, and I'm just going to sort of stop and throw in a little disclaimer up front here. Um, obviously, the topic everyone's been talking about, the topic everyone's been asking us about is um, the shooting that happened near Milliken on uh, Monday afternoon this week. If you're a sports fan and you're here to listen to a sports fan, um, JJ, I'm sure we'll put below the podcast what time we'll start talking about football. So if you want to skip ahead, completely understand that. Um, the vast majority of feedback we've gotten from people on throwing this education stuff into the podcast is that people appreciate us talking about bigger issues than just sports um, when it's made sense to do so. And obviously the whole city, I mean, I just went to the grocery store and two people are asking me about the shooting. So we're going to talk a little bit about what happened and kind of share some of our opinions and perspectives as uh, adults who are on all of the different high school campuses, um, pretty much five days a week, full time. That's our job um, from a different perspective of people who are outside of the school district uh, who are not high school parents or students. Um, so to start with, uh, I'm just going to talk for a couple minutes um, and JJ and Tyler are going, what else is new? Um, but, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to kind of start with what we know so far about what <laughs> happened on Monday. Um, and, uh, we don't have names. There's not going to be any names involved. We're going to talk about the incident and then the three of us will kind of share our thoughts a little bit. And then, as I said, if you want to skip to just the football, I would rather do that as well. I think that's where everyone is emotionally. So very much understand that. Uh, on Monday afternoon, as uh, Millican students were leaving campus, sort of flowing north up Palo Verde to the bus stops uh, across Spring, um, it, there was a fight uh, that sounds like it was a Millican student, um, you know, being uh, kind of jumped or um, with three people uh, fighting a Millican student. And that fight, uh, according to one eyewitness that I spoke to, had spilled out into the street on the, uh, the uh, on Palo Verde. Um, at some point in this, a Long Beach Unified School District uh, school safety officer, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that role later, um, came to the altercation, tried to break it up. Um, we don't have video or anything concrete on any of that. What there is video of is three people, you know, the, who jumped into the gray sedan, go to drive away, and uh, the police officer who was next to the, or the school safety officer who was next to the car uh, fired into the car as it was moving. 
Um, and we know that uh, he struck um, an 18-year-old woman uh, who is currently in the hospital in critical condition. Um, this has obviously raised a lot of questions around guns and safety and police officers and school safety officers. I would just add, because there's a lot of misinformation around this floating around, and we always want to try and paint as clear a picture as possible. Um, there are two types of sort of security officers on campus. The only ones that are really on the campus assigned to schools are what we've always called CSOs or campus security officers that are now called CSAs, which I believe is campus, campus safety assistant. Um, but those are the guys, like Don Norford was that at Poly. Those are the guys that, and, and girls who frequently are coaches, um, but they are assigned to a school. They work for the principal. They're deployed within the school as the principal uh, wants and they're unarmed. Um, they are trained in conflict de-escalation. Um, we have personally witnessed many of those CSAs kind of wading into a fight or whatever to break, uh, break things up. There's 88, I believe, CSAs employed by the district, and I don't have the numbers in front of me. There are, I think, a total of 16 in the school safety officer department, which is a bridge between those unarmed CSAs and the Long Beach Police Department. They do go through law enforcement training, which I think is the 664-hour post-training. Uh, they are armed. They do carry a badge. They are peace officers. Um, they detain um, students, but they're also trained for school shooting situations um, or more serious uh, issues of violence, or if there's a report that a student has a gun on campus, et cetera, et cetera. So, before we start the conversation, I just wanted to very clearly define what we're talking about when we talk about this specific officer was a school safety officer. They are not stationed at schools, so they are not on campus all day with students. Um, they frequently do patrol the areas around schools sort of as school is getting out. Um, I've sometimes seen them acting as traffic cops to make sure that students can cross street safely. Um, and yeah, I, I think a lot of people see them driving around in the white cars that say Long Beach Unified School District on the, yes. on the side. If you go around a campus, you see them parked outside. Right. And that's and that's sort of the, the two main functions for my interviews are there's a patrol function, as JD just mentioned, park outside, make sure everyone's getting on and off campus safely. And then there's the sort of on call, more of what we would think of as a quote unquote typical police officer response of. Cabrillo High School called, they have this problem, they need someone there, you know, that's uh, above and beyond their sort of on-campus unarmed CSAs. Um, so that's the role of what we're talking about. The CSA is also very sort of forward-facing, you know, anytime you're entering campus, it's often, that's who you first interact with at the gate. So, and and they're, they're dressed normally, you know, they're dressed like kind of a teacher, you know, they've always got radios and whatnot, but um, the, the school safety officers look more like a conventional police officer. So they would they be look like a sheriff. sheriff basically, right. they have a brown uniform, you know, they're wearing a badge and they're they're armed. So um, that's the scenario. I, I think we've all seen the video. Um, the video is pretty hard to stomach, if I'm being completely honest. Um, and from this point forward, I think what we will be sharing is our own personal opinions. So if you're not interested in that, as I said, you've uh, you've been warned, you have an out. <laughs> Um, and I would just say, you know, I've done quite a, a bit of reporting on this for the post over the last couple of days, and it's it it's hard. It's it's really it's hard to watch it. Uh, in one video, there's a student nearby, and you can hear her very emotional reaction to having just witnessed someone getting shot while she was trying to walk home from school. Um, that was heartbreaking. 
in addition to the shooting to me to to think about the ripple effects that these kinds of events have on everyone around them um and yeah but i don't know what, what are your where are your guys heads at and, and what are your sort of thoughts on the situation well well i think it's very important right now to just say that nobody wants this to happen but the reason why those officers are on campus around campus involved in campus at all is because people don't want this to happen, right? Like it's supposed to be a deterrent. It's supposed to make these things not possible. We all grew up in the generation that had to deal with the ripple effects, like Mike just said, of Columbine, where we weren't even there, but something that happened two states away or a world away for some people still changed the way they went to school, the way they felt about going to school. And that's why officers like this exist. So obviously the reason why these people are there is to stop bad things from happening. That's, that's the whole point. But I do, but I do think that up front, I just want to say that uh, that time I feel like is not past, but is evolving, and I don't feel like those things are a deterrent anymore for somebody who uh, is is you know got bad on the mind. You know what I mean? If those kids are driving to that place to beat somebody up, I don't think they're having a conversation about whether or not the campus security officer or anybody else around that campus is going to be armed or have a gun or anything like that. Uh, I don't know what that means, but I think we all need to appreciate the fact that uh, somebody having a gun on campus is not the um, the ununderstandable anymore. We all get it. We've all seen it. We've all lived with it. So I think moving forward, that's the way we have to go about it as opposed to in the past where it was, you know, oh my God, everybody on campus needs to be armed in order to stop a student who might be armed. I don't think we're there anymore. Right. And I, and I, and I would add that these, you know, these officers are not stationed on, like there's not someone with a gun who's at Milliken or, you know, or Polly or Cabrillo or what, like that's, they're not stationed in that way. The, the thing I would the larger piece of context that I would add to what JJ just said is there is kind of a constant back and forth that I hear at school board meetings, not just over the last year and a half, um, but kind of constantly of safety versus, you know, whatever else. And um, there are still a ton of parents whose number one fear sending their kid out of the door every day is a school shooting. And those parents put pressure on the school district that they want people who can respond to that. They want as many of those people as possible. And if you look at um, the press telegram, I think it was Chris Hare did a story in 2018 about some of the CSAs being laid off. The school district's response to those layoffs was, well, we still have all of the school safety officers. Anyone who would respond to a school shooting, we're still employing. And they're saying that because that's what they're hearing from parents, right? And I, I would add, you know, when the school district put up um, the fences around the schools, uh, as we've we've discussed on this podcast a couple of times before, Chris Steinhauser at the time was the superintendent. And Chris was honest about, um, I don't want to put these fences up. I don't think it's a good idea. I think these schools, the basketball courts are important to the community. The green space is important. It's the only green space in some of the neighborhoods that the districts uh, are. But what they heard from parents so overwhelmingly was, we want you to put something around our babies and make sure that they're safe. And they were swayed on that, right? And I think um, no one wanted to talk about this on the record. I talked to a couple of people in the school district. There's no evidence to suggest that a fence has any effect on lessening the intent of someone who's coming on a campus to do something bad. 
whether that's to beat someone up um, or something worse than that, right? But that does not matter when you're a public school district that's governed by the public and the public is telling you, we want more security, you know, in whatever way, shape or form that looks like. And I, I think that that's going to be the part that's kind of, because there's also been pressure from Black Lives Matter Long Beach and a number of other organizations saying, completely remove an armed presence from these schools. These are children. We don't want guns around them. We don't have guns around them at home. And that tension has evolved very much from where, as JJ said, he and I were in school. Tyler was even younger when Columbine happened. But that is the dynamic that is going to be difficult, I think, for the school district to to bridge as they well, try and go forward. One, one more thing before we move on from that. Yeah, guns don't make people superheroes. If you give somebody a weapon, they're still a human being with a weapon. And we can never anticipate or expect a human being to be able to be 100% correct in both their training and their reaction at all times with a firearm. Adding a gun to a situation is adding a gun to a situation, full stop. Go ahead, Tyler. No, I, I, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, and as, as Mike mentioned, I was younger. I was in fourth grade when Columbine happened. I was nine. So I spent most of my school time that I was sort of conscious and aware of worrying and wondering, you know, like, am I going to be one of the unlucky kids that has a school shooting at their school, you know? And that's growing up with that kind of mindset. It definitely, you know, it makes you feel like there. it is comforting to have a sort of law enforcement presence that is armed that could intervene if that did happen. You know, I, someone uh, brought a gun to campus um, while I was in high school. And so it, you know, it kind of reaffirmed that threat that like any day you do worry about that. But at the same time, to Mike's point, I, I think it's great to have open campuses. You know, I think being able to play, you know, I grew up playing basketball on middle school campuses with my friends. You know what I mean? That was a fun thing that we could do. And we don't want to lose that you know, preparing for the worst possible outcome. So it's it's a very, it's an impossible balance to strike, right? Because people feel passionately on both sides sure. of it. But I think ultimately when the worst case scenario is life and death and the best case scenario is, wouldn't it be nice to have this? I think it's understandable that the life and death component is gonna sort of win out because of the severity of that, of that side of the argument. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, in a situation like this, where there wasn't a gun present until the officer showed up, it appears there's no, there's nothing to. We don't, we don't, we don't know that. Right, there's nothing. Yeah, um, but as of right now, there's no reason to assume. We don't definitively that know that. Yes. Right. Right. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm not certainly not justifying the actions of, you know, driving somewhere to fight someone or jump someone or whatever, um, whatever you want to call it. But I, I think it was a specific action in which people can say they want an officer on or around campus that could intervene if there were a school shooter, if there were an active shooter situation. Um, but I would say that is where an officer being armed should be limited to um, basically those scenarios exclusively. And I think introducing a gun to a situation where that imminent threat did not appear to be present um, only escalated the violence and now led to, to someone being shot in critical condition um, do we think, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a tough thing to sort of armchair quarterback, but I mean, would that officer been just as effective in breaking up that fight and having the, you know, perpetrators fleeing the scene and everything being over if he hadn't had a gun was the introduction of the gun, what led to 
everything stopping? Would he have not been able to break up that fight unless he were armed? And that's not right. going to be true for know. every circumstance, right? Right. It's impossible and, and to we know. Do, and, and we don't know the answer to that question. One thing I do want to drill down on, the school district superintendent, Joe Baker, put out a statement that was, um, I thought, pretty strong in kind of implying as much as they're able to while the investigation is still going on, that they don't feel that the officer was acting within their safety protocols. Um, I did request a copy of the training manual for the school safety officers, um, and they, the district says they don't release that information because it includes tactical strategy on how to deal with some of the um, situations we've been discussing. Um, Jeremiah Dobrook at the Post, um, who is their breaking news editor, um, does have the did have the police manual for the Long Beach Police Department on what their policy is and their policy uh, regarding shooting at moving vehicles um, says. Uh, <laughs> basically that you shouldn't do it. <laughs> um, you know, police officers shall weigh the need to shoot at an imminent threat in a moving vehicle against the risk that a firearms discharge may create, such as harm to other persons in the vehicle, the public, or the danger of an uncontrolled vehicle from an incapacitated driver. Police officers shall avoid placing themselves in the path of a moving vehicle or a feasible move out of the way of an oncoming vehicle. The use of firearms at a moving vehicle by a police officer is authorized in the event of an imminent threat or immediate apprehension. Um, but in other words, it's obviously not advisable. It's dangerous, not just um, to those involved, but to the people around the setting. And if you've ever been at Palo Verde in spring after Milliken has let off, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people around. And that's very obvious in the video that's out there that there are a lot of people um, nearby when this happened. Yeah, there were uh, plenty of unanswerable questions right now. The first one that came to my mind when I found out where it was happening was how responsible is a school district when school gets out or before school starts? Like wh where's the halo around the campus? How responsible are they in the surrounding areas uh, for the students and more importantly, the people who are interacting with the students, people who are not in school or just driving down the street or whatever, like how responsible are they? I, I don't know, that's unanswerable. Another unanswerable question is, how can you stop this from happening again? Because basically the answer is, and this has been my answer anytime and anybody has asked me, what do you do with a uh, with an overaggressive peace officer or somebody who did something they're not supposed to do? The answer is better training. The answer is somebody who knows what not to do and not doing that. That's always going to be the answer. Obviously, there's hindsight and 2020 and all that stuff, but like it, better training of the officers, no matter where they are on or off campus, and a better understanding of where their jurisdiction begins and ends, I think as a step towards something like this, hopefully not happening again. I think the, the first unanswerable question that you just brought up is indeed unanswerable, but is also a subject of quite a bit of concern um, and, and debate. I mean, someone posted on, um, I think it was, it was either Nextdoor or Facebook, but someone posted on a comment of one of the post stories that I had worked on. The school district is responsible for the kids' safety from the moment they walk out the door to the moment they get home because the kids either go to school, they're at school, or they're coming home from school. That's the most extreme version of an answer to JJ's question. But if you go all the way in the extreme, the other side, they're only responsible for the kid the moment they pass through a gate. Right. And then until the that's not true either. No. I, you know, and when um, when Tyler and I were students in the LBUSD, um, I would walk from my house when I went to middle school, for example, I went to Hughes Middle School. I grew up in East Long Beach. I passed eight middle schools on the way to my middle school. I would walk from my house 
to DeMille Middle School, which is now McBride High School. It was about a mile walk. Presumably, I'm responsible for myself at that point, but I did that every day by myself to and from. Then I got on an LBUSD school bus at, <laughs> you know, at McBride High School, and I was dri- or at uh, DeMille Middle School, and I was driven to Hughes. So certainly the school district was responsible for me at that point. When school got out, I got back on the bus. It took me back to DeMille, and then I would walk home from there. So somewhere in there, I was my parents' responsibility, my responsibility, or whatever. We are now living in a very litigious environment. And so that is a real question that people need to answer. Um, and it's a, it's a real, I don't know, it's a real concern. And, you know, look, this came up um, a couple of years ago when um, there was a huge story near Polly of a Black disabled student who had been being jumped by um, Hispanic teenagers. And the community, you know, cried out and said to the school district, this kid's walking from his house to your school. He's not at your school. He's not even in front of the school. He's a a few blocks away, but you have an obligation to protect this kid um, because you're not picking him up at his house, right? Like he's going to school. And, you know, I remember at the time thinking like you're asking the school district to kind of solve a decades old neighborhood and sometimes gang um, tensions and conflicts. That's a difficult thing for them to do. But at the same time, that's really easy for me to say, sitting in East Long Beach where my kid walks home and there's a crossing guard and he doesn't have to worry about, you know, gangs in his neighborhood or anything like that. And if that were my kid, I would absolutely want them to be able to walk safely from my house to the school. And while it might seem not fair to ask the school district to solve that, it's certainly not fair to ask a kid's mom to solve it. Right. Like, right. It's someone's got to, you know, if it's the school, it's the Long Beach Police Department, it's the city, it's the city, whoever it is, it's not the kid's responsibility to get himself, you know, to create a safe world for him to walk through. So it's on all of us, really. Right. Well, and and yeah, it's there's so much gray area, right? And, and, because no, no kid has the same path to school or the same, you know, process for how they get there. I mean, I know when I was, you know, sometimes I would take the city bus home um from high school and I'd be sitting you know like around the corner from campus and if I was getting jumped (laughs) and a school safety officer was nearby I wouldn't want them to look at that and be like damn sucks for him too bad he didn't get jumped on campus you know what I mean he's not my right not my problem because that was in the process of me going to and from school so I was still a student that was just trying to fulfill my education for that day um but I also don't think that if people were jumping me that they should get killed for that. You know what I mean? Uh, so it's a right. very, uh, <laughs> it's a very tough situation. And I think it ultimately comes down to um, this being kind of a use of force and access to force conversation. Um, I think, uh, you know, like you said, Mike, just sort of parsing the the, the statement from, um, from Dr. Baker and, and um, you know, what the LBPD have said, it's like, there's certainly questions right now, as far as the process and whether that was handled properly. Um, by the school safety officer. Um, and I think that's what's gonna dominate the conversation. You know, like, was this just one situation where protocol was not followed? Is there a way to update those protocols? Is there a change to who is patrolling campuses, whether they're armed, whether the firearm is on their person or it's something that they can access it if there is a school shooting, but it wouldn't be used heat of the moment if they're just breaking up a fight or whatever. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that can look at the situation and say, hey, these people were coming and looking for trouble. 
Um, and when you do that, you don't know what the consequences are going to be. And that's, I understand that, that sentiment, but at the same time, if everyone got killed for fighting in their teens, uh, I man, would not be here. Be a lot of people not around right now. You know what I mean? Right. So, uh, and that, that that's the, the, the question is where the line between kids fighting, which happens, uh, we straight up, my friends and does. I used to <laughs> yeah. adult adults fight too, guys. But it's, but but it's like, you know, my, 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 my friends and I used to go to a football game at Lakewood high school when our high school was playing them and we'd go in the parking lot and we'd fight with other kids. We knew we were going to be there. They knew we were going to be there. They knew they were going to be there. Like that it's part of being a teenager. And I I know there's a zero tolerance policy for it. And we're not glorifying. I'm not saying I think it's great. I'm just saying if, uh, again, there was a corporal punishment for fighting, I would not be co-hosting this podcast right now because I was also a teenager. Right. And the question is, What's the line between kids fighting and a gang jumping a kid or some sort of other situation where you feel that there's a, a more heightened response from an unarmed CSA jumping in to break up a fight? And I don't have the answer to that question. Um, I think also organizations like Black Lives Matter Long Beach would say they don't feel that an armed officer makes them feel better about someone breaking up a situation of a kid getting jumped or a gang being involved. And I after what happened on Monday, you can't dismiss that opinion at all, you know, because as, as, as you guys both pointed out, like up until the gun was introduced, this was a bad thing that happened, but that most likely everyone's going home and probably not to the hospital. And or we wouldn't have talked else. about it. It wouldn't have been a story. It would have just been kind of another day where, oh, did you hear that someone got in a fight after school or some kid got jumped? And it's like, it, no one likes Which that we've been hearing but... about and seeing videos of, and we don't like it happening, but it is part of, that is part of the landscape of our city and, and of our lives and of my life personally and whatever else in our past, you know, like, yeah. And I don't know where that line, but I don't know where that line is. And that's, uh, there's a school board meeting next week. I'm sure that's going to absolutely be the major subject of conversation um, is how to, how to deal with this. Well, and, and yeah, speaking for me personally, you know, I, I never feel safer in a situation once a gun is introduced. I always, and, and other people may feel differently on this. I think they probably do. But regardless of who has it, anytime there's an option of deadly force being introduced to a situation, I always feel less safe. However, knowing, you know, as we talked about living in a world where I'm thinking about a school shooting as a student, because that's the world that I grew up in. Right. I do for your I, basically a whole academic career. Right. I would feel safer knowing that there is a campus security person that could, you know, that has that weapon that could intervene if there already was a gun in the situation. So mentally, like that sort of like fogs my brain because it's hard to hold those two things at the same time. I don't want there to be a gun, but if there is a gun, I do want there to be a gun. So it's very, it's very weird. And there's no, um, kind of clear cut answer to it. So, uh, you know, how do we move forward? And it's just, it's weighing the risks, the disadvantages, the, the fear, all of that stuff. And really you're never gonna have a perfect solution. So let's get that thought out of our heads right now. Um, we just hope that there can be, you know, progress made where these situations don't arise. And it really, every person has to take their individual, you know, how can, we do better you know what can we do to make the the situation better in our opinion and and how can we teach our our kids to be safe and to not 
you know, <laughs> not fight. I know that's so unreasonable because we just know that it's impossible to get to, but um, yeah, just giving people the support. And, you know, obviously now I, I feel for the kids at Millican, they already went through a tragic um, death to one of their students um, that was um, hit by a, a driver recently. And it's just, man, it's, it's too much hardship that, that these kids are going through. I mean, it, now we're almost putting the pandemic in the rearview mirror. Like that isn't still going on and isn't a serious concern for so many families. Um, so it's, it's just heartbreaking and, uh, you know, hopefully we can, um, you know, talk it out and come to an agreement as a, as a community to, to build the, the city and the community that we want to see for each other. I completely agree, Tyler. And the key that you just said is communication. And that's why we're here. That's why we're doing the education stories with Long Beach Post is to make sure that that communication channel is clear. So please get on there, read the stories, educate yourself so that when we do talk, we know what we're talking about. As Tyler mentioned at the top of the show, everything we do at the562.org is sponsored by Naples Rib Company, the best ribs in the city. Got a lot of competition, but the ribs do not. It still feels like summer when you get the hog pack on the weekend, watching some football with your boys. You got all the great meat available, but do not sleep on the sides. Right now, I'm just jonesing, jonesing for some Naples Rib Company mac and cheese. Love that stuff. So make sure if you're having a party or if you're just having dinner with the fam and you don't want to messy the kitchen, call Naples Rib Company, get online, make an order with Naples Rib Company. You'll thank us later, but before you do, tell them that the 562.org sent you. Guys, it is rivalry week. We have the biggest rivalries for local football coming down this week and one really cool addition. We will go in order, but first and foremost, the two teams that I think are coming into rivalry week looking like they're the top two teams in the league without question is Polly and Milliken because Polly's Polly and they look great. And Milliken gave Polly a little bit of a game at times last Friday at Veterans Memorial Stadium where you guys were. And when you got home from that game, we talked as much about Milliken as we did about Polly. In a yeah, I think victory. first and foremost, you know, we get crap sometimes in other years for gassing up a matchup that someone, the, the second place team in the more leagues matchup against Polly. And, and sometimes people give me crap for, you know, this isn't going to be a real game, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And Mike, Mike let, let's first say first and foremost, that's how we got popular. The first thing that really put us on the map was breaking down position by position of the Moore League Super Bowl when Lakewood was playing Polly. So they it can was, say what yeah. they want to say, but it worked. 15 years. Well, this is what I always tell. I always tell people, look, man, I mean, you know, we got to sell newspapers too. You know, like there's, there's, some, there's, some, there's some truth in that. Absolutely. Like, did we expect uh, when Wilson was undefeated and they were playing Polly, did we expect that Wilson was going to beat Polly that year? No. No. 100%. Is it still a big game regardless of what I think is going to happen mm. in the game? Yes. It's 100%. the big game, Mike. <laughs> well, and, and, and so, to have you know, the ego to be like, just because we didn't think it was going to happen guarantees that it's not going to happen. You know what I mean? Because I'm I, not that smart, number one. And number two, then why are we playing a season? Right? right. I mean, like. Right. <laughs> They're still high school kids. They're still high school kids. So, but, but I did point out to a number of people who kind of accuse us of doing the same thing. I said, look, this game is not going to have the sizzle that like those Polly Wilson games had when Wilson was coming in undefeated that were ranked number two in their division in CIF is not going to have that sizzle because Milliken had also lost several games, right? So Polly and Milliken both had a bad uh, record, but I said, I think there's more stake there. That Milliken team had, I mean, a division one quarterback in miles Jackson, a le legit 
Arizona Pac-12 commit into Cario Davis playing both skills and uh, Ryan Pelham, a legit like superstar prospect uh, at both skills. You look at every challenger to Polly since they lost from 2009 in 2009 to Milliken up until th- that game against Milliken last Friday. The second place team playing Polly in each of those years. How many Division One athletes do you think those teams had combined prior to Friday? Two. Yeah. <laughs> so the game on Friday, <laughs> that you know those Wilson teams, they were really good teams in the division they were in. But as we discussed at the time, they didn't have a dude going to Arizona outside. Mm-hmm. This Milliken team had the talent to give them a real puncher's chance against Polly. Jack Rabbit's missing some guys, definitely opening the door as well. But that was a real game. And I still see Polly people out there like, oh, they only beat Milliken by 14. And you're like, that might be the most right. talented team they play for the rest of the season. Right. No, <laughs> I, and I think it's it's disrespectful to the talent that Milliken does have. And that th- those three um, D1 guys that you mentioned, Mike, obviously those three kind of made the biggest impact on the game. But, but Milliken has more d1 guys than that i mean we saw Jaden hunt at an interception in the game yes. he's got uh Jay drummer. He, he's got a few uh, offers as well Jay drummer at receiver so and there's younger guys that look like they could also become um prospects as well i, I think the the biggest key as it's been that where Polly's advantage usually lies is on the offensive and defensive lines and the depth you know because it, it's so many of those millican players were playing both ways and that's where it becomes difficult to pull those upsets off and the Rams needed a little bit more to go their way. Obviously they got a ton of penalty yardage from Polly. Uh, the Jackrabbits, it was a combination of, you know, just some poor discipline early. Uh, there was, I think four or five offsides calls in the first like six minutes of the game against the Jackrabbits and stuff that needs to be cleaned up. Um, it was also a byproduct <laughs> of having more officials at the game. Um, there were two extra officials working that game. So you would already expect uh, to see more flags in those games. There was some, uh, a lot of uh, defensive pass interference called against the Jackrabbits, but I also think that some of that may have been strategic. There was like four on one drive towards uh, uh, towards the end of the half where, uh, you know, it just kind of made strategic sense because you just have to deny the touchdown at all costs. But uh, a few things go differently in that game, and Milliken could have tied it, taken the lead late. You know, there's they got stopped at the one-yard line. There was fumbles inside the red zone. Um, that either set up a poly drive or took away points from Milliken. So uh, it, it was definitely a football game. And Polly was certainly in control of the game and led by three touchdowns late um, before Milliken was able to score in the final minute. But, um, you know, I mean, respects to the Rams for playing their best game. And Romeo Pelham said it. We played our best game, and it happened to come against the best team they're going to play all season. And it's important to remember for Milliken – the road gets easier. And no more Long Beach Polly's in front of you. No, and we don't. We'll, we'll see what division they end up in. But the, the Rams have to feel very good if they can continue on this trajectory of improving, putting together a good game plan, executing, not committing penalties. And you know they really took care of business. And for a young team that's led by that sophomore quarterback and and uh, Ryan Pelham, the sophomore playmaker, their confidence has got to be through the roof right now. 
Absolutely, and like we said, it is rivalry week. So, Polly is taking on Wilson at Veterans Memorial Stadium. But I think the game we've all got our eyes on is that Milliken-Lakewood game for the Hamilton Trophy that they didn't get to play for in the spring. We wrote about it in the spring, how Lakewood obviously had to stop practicing stuff like that with their positive tests. They got their game canceled. They had two game ca games canceled, actually. Uh, so they didn't really have the practice going into the Milliken game. Uh, and they decided, we'll play you, but we don't want to play for the trophy that uh, that we currently have. The Hamilton Trophy, obviously a trophy just for the football game. So it's a heated rivalry, right? Well, Milliken wants that back. They want it back real bad, and they can only do it one way. And that's by beating Lakewood. So they're going to be ready for this game. But let's just talk about the keys for each team, right? I think Milliken's key for this game has got to be the discipline they have recently found. I saw it in the game at Jordan where they did not over-celebrate things and they were able to avoid the big 15-yard penalties that have uh, gotten in their way in the past. They were, and almost, they, and, they were almost perfect against Polly at that and, well. and you guys said that they were almost perfect against Polly. So I think if they can maintain that discipline in a heated rivalry, that to me will be the telltale sign that they are a disciplined team, not a undisciplined team trying to find discipline. Whereas with Lakewood, I think it's all about the start, man. Lakewood has had bad starts in their losses across the board. So if they can put together a decent first quarter and then look at the scoreboard and be like, hey, we didn't beat ourselves in the first 12 minutes. We're taking a step forward. I think that could really make this a game. I think on paper going in, we've already mentioned it, Milliken is the more talented team, but it's a rivalry. Throw the records out the window. So I think very early on in that game, both Milliken's uh, discipline and Lakewood's, whether or not they're in the game after the first quarter, is really going to tell us a lot about the teams going forward for the rest of the season, not just this game and who takes the Hamilton home. Well, and I think that's a good point. I think if, it, you know, if you can hold it and keep that kind of focus and the it, we're playing for a championship, we're not just playing only for this game. If Milliken has that and, and doesn't get pulled into the, the scrappiness of the rivalry, like you said, JJ, I think that's a great sign for them going forward. Also, Milliken's got to stop the run. And so I would assume that Lakewood's going to keep the ball on the ground, but uh, the Rams, especially with the game coming up against Compton, um, following that Lakewood game, that's an area that Milliken has to improve. If I'm we Calvin saw their Bryant, secondary make plays. If I'm Calvin yeah. Bryant, I'm watching that Polly Milliken game, licking my chops. Like you let Devin yeah. Samples run for how many yards? <laughs> And, and that's all, that's kind of a, a point of, of concern for, for Milliken going back a few years. And so that's, um, this is the time to, to work on that and start to make progress towards that Compton game and into the playoffs, because, you know, if teams can run the ball on you and keep the ball away from your talented playmakers, that's a good way. That's a good recipe for getting upset right in the playoffs. Um, so that's definitely something for, for the Rams to work on. Um, and, and for Lakewood, yeah, it's, they're trying to get a winning streak going, right? I mean, they, they obviously had the the, the big win crazy, over Cabrillo for their first win. And then that crazy last second win uh, or last minute win rather uh, against um, against Jordan, like you said. So, you know, can they roll that momentum and, you know, and make this a, an exciting game? I'm certainly looking forward to it. The last game we've got on the docket in the Moore League is a new rivalry, an old rivalry with a new face on it. It's Jordan and Compton. Oh, and you Mike skipped the over the big game. No, I said it in the front. Oh, you want to break down Polly Wilson? Go for it, Mike. People want to know. There's been. Yeah, I'm no, waiting. Go for get, it. We got as many questions about what the heck is going on with Polly as we did about like, is Milliken legit? Like, what's up with Milliken? So, I mean, there's. <laughs> it, it needs to be said. 
it needs to be said. No, clear the airway, clear the airways, Tyler. Mike, Mike wants to break it down. Go for it, bud. You really painted me into a corner. There. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, it is the big game. It is the big rivalry. Yellow, uh, Mike. You know, it, historically in the city, um, tradition lives on. Uh, I, it's Polly's homecoming game. I think uh, we'll be, I'll be very curious to see. I do think JJ, when we talk about Polly. I'm very curious to see how they come back from that Milliken game because they did end up winning it. Uh, They did end up looking really good running the ball, but they also know that from this point forward, being able to run the ball against more league teams is not going to be proof of being able to do anything in the playoffs. Um, So I think they're going to come out and need to show that they have timing in their passing game. Um, They know they can go to the run whenever they need it. But I also think they need to do something about the penalties. We said it was a ton. It was 22 penalties for 235 yards for Polly against Milliken. So whether you're playing Polly, uh, whether you're playing Milliken, whether you're playing Wilson, if you're if you're Polly looking to potentially win a CIF championship this year, you very much need to get that problem solved. Um, and so that's sort of my number one thing I'm looking forward to seeing them is can they handle that or not? And then for Wilson, um, you know, there's some dudes on that team. Uh, I know you really like CC, the young running back. Uh, we think he's got a very bright future over the next two and a half years. Um, I'm always, I always love seeing how teams line up against Polly, particularly when they're not having a great season, because you really see, you really get to see, right? In a bad situation, what do you have? And it's also a chance for dudes like CC to kind of have a star turn. If you, even if you bust out and make two or three big plays in that game on Friday, a lot more people are going to see it. And when it comes up on your film, on your huddle that you're sending out to college coaches, a 60-yard touchdown against Polly means a little bit different than a 60-yard touchdown against Cabrillo. Um, so I'm very curious to see how they come out as well. So then the last one is an update. They changed the venue from Compton College because Compton High School obviously under construction right now to Jordan High School. Jordan Also under hosting, construction right now. Also under, under construction, field. yeah, for the last <laughs> decade plus. Uh, Jordan High School going to host that game against Compton and they're making a new rivalry and they're naming it after another freeway, Tyler, I feel like you doing the Jordan Cabrillo 710 rivalry has really opened it up to adding freeways to rivalries. Uh, you know, it's uh, laying the groundwork. You know what I mean? It's just uh, it's just what I do. It's, uh, you know, I'm no Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, I, I didn't, uh, you know, come up with or, <laughs> you know, install this national highway system, but I did spin it for our own benefit as none of you are aware uh, I've dubbed the Cabrillo-Jordan rivalry the 7-10 rivalry. And now the powers that be, who have clearly have much more influence than I do, have gone literally different the other direction. We've, we, we, were, uh, we were longitude. We've gone latitudinal with it. And we have the 91 rivalry. Is that what it's, is that it's what we're 91 calling grid, it? 91 gridiron trophy. So I'm very The 91 yes. gridiron trophy. There you go. So I thought it was the 91 gridlock trophy. That would have made a lot more sense. Particularly Honestly, between Jordan and Compton, that would be absolutely appropriate. <laughs> if they played that game two hours earlier, if that was a five o'clock game, absolutely. Um, this is, but this is an interesting ball game. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about, the, the potential outcome in this one. I mean, I'm, you've got a Jordan team. That's kind of, I don't know if we want to say overachieved, but they've got a couple wins under their belt. They almost uh, knocked off Lakewood almost for the first time in a lot of water. But for the first time in 13 years, and you're right, they really should have won that game. Yeah. And then, and Compton, we, 
looked at as a potential third place team that we haven't really seen them at full strength yet. Right. We know that they're, we know that they've got talent. We know they've got a huge offensive line. They can run the football, but they haven't been healthy together. They, their game last week, they were going to play Narbon. It got canceled because of a, a positive test from the Gauchos. So we, we just haven't quite seen Compton in all of its glory yet. And uh, man, it's a, it's a great opportunity to show that, Hey, we're here and we're ready to make a run now that we're healthy, but Jordan's not going to make it easy. It's also a must win. It's a must win for both teams. If they've got playoff aspirations. And I think it's the first real yardstick we're going to get for Compton, healthy or not. That Jordan team yeah. uh, played Milliken, who looks like the second-place team in the league right now. Pretty lopsided loss. They played Lakewood, who was a team that was going to be in the mix for a playoff spot, and they were pretty much dead even. So I think if Compton comes in and takes care of business, you go, okay, these guys are for real hunting for that playoff spot. And if Jordan wins, it's going to be absolute chaos, quite frankly, for that third playoff spot. I, you know, I mean, yeah. it really is going to come down to – um, kind of every game for the rest of the season. So big result either way. St. Anthony also opening up their Del Rey League schedule against LaSalle at uh, St. Pius. Um, they're on a three-game winning streak. I mean, probably the most surprising thing about the season so far, and I feel dumb saying that because we are the media people who don't underrate Raul Lara. <laughs> right. Right. But he, but he but, told me but before even- the season, he just did not think that this stuff was going to start coming this year. And uh, no one knows how to get more out of a workhorse running back than Raul Lara. And they are Man. riding Sony Alpiu potentially to a playoff spot because they have played some of the, they've played teams that are going to be better than most of the teams that are playing in the league already. So they kind of know what yep. that mark is at. Yeah. And they've been able to stay healthy, which is so important. No, yeah, absolutely. JJ and, and Sony can make anyone look like a really smart play caller. <laughs> just like, Hey, give it to uh give it to 24 and then just have him break like eight tackles. Yeah. <laughs> Is yeah, is multiple stiff arm a part of the play call? I write. I write supposed to be able to hit that button multiple, once per play when you're on multiple stiff arm. <laughs> Ready, break. Yeah, we're gonna have people at all of the games uh, we just mentioned. So make sure that you are following along live on Friday via our Twitter account or at the 562.org if you don't have Twitter. We got a story up there that has all of the tweets all in a row so you can basically follow it like it's your own timeline. And it's just the timeline that is Long Beach football. It's rivalry week. Things are going to be heated. Things are going to be exciting. We are excited for it. Thank you to everybody at Long Beach Post and the562.org for making that coverage possible and making this show possible. Please interact with this show. Let us know what you want to hear. Let us know what you think about what we've said on this show and make sure that you are picking up your community. It's why we're here. It's what we do. It's what we should all be doing. So Long Beach, we will see you in the stands this weekend. Take care.